full, that you rule over not only this nation, but this world and all nations for all time, and that is for our great good. Father, we want to pray for our nation and for our community, for other churches in our area. We pray especially right now for our own nation. You've told us in your word to pray for the the governmental rulers and those who are in authority over us. And so we want to pray right now this morning, uh, especially in the wake of a very uh, intensive and, and passionate and divisive national election, we pray for healing in this nation and pray for our political leaders to lead well in this context. We pray for President Obama and those that work with him and ask that they would use their last weeks in office for the good of the nation, that you would give them great wisdom to know how best to accomplish the transition of power. We pray for uh, President-elect Trump and those who will be working with him and ask that you would prepare him for the task that is before him, much greater than any single man. Give him wisdom. And we pray, Father God, with gratitude that we live in a country where transitions of power take place without bloodshed, And we pray for the good of this country. Father, we think of those around the world who are also in need of your blessings. Our our friends in Haiti that Jordan just mentioned earlier, we thank you for the Haiti Foundation of Hope. We thank you for the school that is there. We thank you for the ministry that they are having in your name amongst some of the poorest of the world. And we pray for the success of that school, specifically for this cafeteria project. What What a joy, what a basic good gift to be able to provide children with the food their bodies need so that their minds can continue to learn and they can continue to grow strong. We pray that that the world would know that you are God in powerful ways as a result of what happens through this congregation as we give to support the work of that cafeteria in Haiti. Father, we thank you for our brothers and sisters in Christ around this city and around our area. We are blessed to be connected with and involved with so many other churches. I think this morning of Pastor Chad and Ben over at University Park Baptist Church in St. John's. I want to pray for them this morning as they gather at this very time right now to worship you as we are. I pray for their effective gospel witness in this Christmas holiday season in the midst of a very culturally and ethnically diverse community in North Portland. God, give that congregation a unique ability to display the love of the gospel for all peoples at this Christmas season in a way that will draw many men and women in North Portland to find faith in Christ and eternal life this year. Pray that you'd bless them in their efforts. Finally, Father, we want to pray for our own church We pray for this Advent conspiracy offering that we've been talking about and enjoying thinking about. Father God, I pray that you would move in the hearts of the men and women in your congregation to give, not out of of guilt or obligation or frustration, but that you would captivate our hearts with the reason we are here in this world, to make the gospel known through sacrificial giving as you have done by giving yourself to us on the cross. And we do pray that the gospel would be known around this world and right here in our community because of the people in this congregation choosing to live differently than we would want to on our own because you are in our lives and that makes all the difference. So Father, we pray that you would find in us grateful and generous hearts, that you would put in us the kind of grateful and generous giving spirit that you yourself possessed when you came to this earth to become man, leaving heaven's throne room, giving up everything that we in turn might receive everything. And we pray that you would be glorified in that, in Christ's name, amen. Our passage this morning is taken from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. 
as soon as I turn to the right book, I'll read it to you. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who have dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff on his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's word for us. You may be seated. This past week, it being the Christmas season, we here at the church had our annual staff Christmas party, which entails a uh, gift exchange and thievery session. Some of you may be familiar with this kind of a white elephant exchange. You know, everybody brings a gift wrapped and, and you take turns and people either open a gift and then kind of, you know, as you're getting further and further on, people have the opportunity to either open another gift or steal something somebody else has already opened. And so it's, it's a real team-building exercise. Let me tell you something. Anytime that you do something where there's rules like this, it reveals a lot about the true motives of the heart. Uh, you learn a lot about the people that you work with. Um, this activity never ceases to disappoint. This uh, past week was no exception. You know, you can always tell the people who like the gifts that, that they, uh, or sorry, that don't like the gifts that they open. Because, you know, you get something, you open it up, and you're like, I mean, one year I got the stuff that was like a whole bath and body kit for women. And I'm like, I, I don't want this, you know? They give it to your wife. No, I'm selfish. I want a gift for me, you know? And, and you can always tell those people who, who open something that they don't want because uh, as the game goes on, they'll put it like right in the middle of the coffee table, right? They'll push it right out there in the middle of the room because the idea is as time goes on, you know, there's, there's, I don't know, 12 or 14 people playing this game, you know, by the time you get to stuff seven, eight or nine, you kind of forgotten now what gifts were open. Am I going to steal something or am I going to open a new one? Like, hey, check this one out. Look at this. Oh, I just happened to put it right in front of your face. You want to take this, you know, because those are the people that want to get rid of their gifts. So there's those people who, who get something that they don't want. And then there's people like Jordan, You know, they, they get a gift and they're like, hey, I really like this, but the game is not over yet, which means somebody, according to the rules, could steal it. 
And so the gift magically as the game goes on doesn't really end up front and center in the coffee table. It's kind of like, I'm going to put it down on the floor right by me as I'm sitting, you know, and I'm going to kind of move my leg over in the front just casually so that it's hiding, you know, so that when people are looking around going like, hey, do I want to steal something? They're like, nothing here. Just move along. Look somewhere else. You know, you would think as a pastor, there would be more honest engagement (laughs) with the rules of the game. (laughs) I actually called them out on it at some point. They're like, hey, what's, I'm like, hey, look at Jordan's gift. He's like, well, I don't, I, 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 you know, The truth is I called him out because I was just jealous. Uh, (laughs) I had something I didn't want. He had something he wanted, and he was going to get away with it. And he did. (laughs) So disappointed in my fellow staff people, I tell you. (laughs) It's easy to play a game and agree to the rules, but your willingness to follow the rules to the nth degree kind of depends on your point of view, doesn't it? And a lot of us not only play fun Christmas games this way, a lot of us kind of live life this way, don't we? I know what the rules are and I agree to them, but I can sort of fudge it a little bit or hedge a little bit or interpret things a little bit differently to my advantage. And it's not just life. Sometimes we follow God this way. Sure, I'm called to follow God 100%, and, and I'm a Christian, so I'm interested in doing that. 100%. But then you can hedge a little bit, of course. You can reinterpret some things the Bible says so that it doesn't really mean that. I mean, what if I go this far? And that kind of satisfies the general idea. Isn't that good enough? That's what the ancient Israelites did in the Old Testament. And it didn't work out well for them. It's a major part of the Bible's storyline. For the next three Sundays, we're taking a a break from our main series in the New Testament book of Revelation. We're going to resume that in mid-January. For these next three Sundays of Advent season leading up to Christmas, we're going to look at the coming of Jesus in three different passages of Scripture, the coming of Jesus as the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. Both of those words are very important. And here's the whole point of this morning's sermon. I'll give it to you straight up front. The peace and wholeness that Jesus' birth promises comes when his authority as king is firmly established. That's the whole point. The Bible's message is that the peace, the life that Jesus coming into the world represents only can be experienced when he is the prince, when he is the king, when he is reigning and ruling. His peace and his kingship go together. They are inseparably connected. And we see that in this passage in Isaiah chapter 9. By Isaiah's time, he's uh, prophesying in the 6th century B.C., uh, over 600 years, about 600 years before the time of Jesus. Verse 1 of chapter 9 divides human history into two time periods. The former time, to use Isaiah's words, and the latter time. The former time is characterized by anguish and bad stuff. The latter time is characterized as a time of great blessing, peace. Now, the English word peace is actually not super helpful here. The, the Old Testament word typically is shalom, the Hebrew word. It means a lot more than just peace means in English. In English, peace means like people stop fighting, right? <laughs> a ceasefire is peace. But shalom means a lot more than that. Shalom means wholeness. Shalom means goodness. Shalom is when everything is the way it was meant to be, when everything is working right. 
everybody has a picture in their minds of what shalom would look like in our own lives. What's shalom for you? Is it sitting uh, beachside with a turquoise ocean and a little umbrella drink and the palm trees swaying? Oh, yes, soaking in the sun. Life's good. Sometimes shalom is my family is all together. The fire's lit. We're around the table. Everybody's happy. Everyone's together. If I could just have this forever, I would, I would die a happy person. That's, that's the good life. Maybe it's just shalom means I'm not sick anymore. Or the people that I've lost are, are back. I haven't lost them. The details are different, but we all have a sense of what we think the good life would be, what shalom looks like. And you know, in the Old Testament, the the Jewish people had a sense of shalom as well. They had a very clear picture of what the good life with God looked like, and it comes right out of Genesis chapter 12. It consisted largely of three things, the three promises God made, the threefold promise God made to Abraham. For them, shalom looked like them being a nation, a whole nation full of people living together in the land of God's promise. That's what we today call the land of Palestine, the land God promised them. When we're a nation and we're living in his land, and then it's characterized, God said, by tremendous blessing. That means God says, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. You as a nation will be uniquely connected to me in a way that no other nation is. And as a result, you're going to get many material blessings as well. There will be national security. There will be health. There will be wealth. You'll have large families. Life will be measurably good because you're close to God and God's blessing. That's what shalom looked like. That's what peace looked like to them in Isaiah's day. And you know, by the time they had reached the time of King David, we're not yet up to our passage in Isaiah yet. We're still about 400 years before this. But there's a background to this whole passage in Isaiah 9 that's being alluded to here. By the time they reached, uh, the ancient Israelites reached sort of the, the height of their um, success in their history under King David and his son, King Solomon, they had largely appeared to have achieved their view of shalom. They were a nation. It was a whole large group of people, ethnically connected, sharing a common identity. They did live uh, in the land of Palestine as a nation with Jerusalem as the capital city and they were ruled by a king just like every other nation. You could look at any nation in the world back at that point in history and they had what every other nation had. We're a legitimate nation. We're here living in the land of God's promise and in many ways they were also experiencing the blessing of being connected to God. God had promised their king eternal divine support. That's pretty cool. I'll be with you and and your nation in a way that I'm not with any other nation. That was what he promised to them. Uh, They had more wealth, certainly, than they had ever had in their past, because in their past they had lived as slaves and then later as nomads wandering out in the desert. Now they had a permanent home, they had their own land, they had their own wealth. And maybe most of all, they had a permanent temple structure built in Jerusalem by King David's son Solomon. The temple in the Old Testament was the place where you went to meet with God. That's where God's presence was. And there was only one temple in the entire world to God, and it was with the people of God, the Israelites, in the, old, uh, in the promised land during the Old Testament times. They had this unique connection with God. They could go meet with God because he and his temple and his presence was with them. It looked like shalom was happening. Unfortunately, it didn't last. Because while things looked good on the surface, there was actually massive dry rot 
in the whole national life of God's people, just below the surface. Much of what they had achieved was actually of their own making and on their own terms, not on God's terms. So while it looked good on the surface, it wasn't really what God had intended for them. Think back to the time of Joshua and the judges. The Israelites were characterized by a cultural religion as opposed to a pure devoted one. Uh, you might sometimes, we sometimes call this foxhole religion or foxhole faith, you know. Basically, they would uh, worship God kind of on the outside. They would sort of do some of the things that good uh, followers of God were supposed to do back then. So it looked good from the outside, but deep down inside, they were really living for themselves. They were doing what seemed right to them, and, and their hearts had divided loyalties. And it was only in times of great crisis where suddenly they were brought to the end of themselves that they ran back to God and said, we're sorry for all the things we've done wrong. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Please help us. And God would help them, but then as soon as the crisis passed, they just went back to their old kind of cultural religion, making it look good on the outside, but we're really living for ourselves. That's why we sometimes call this foxhole religion or foxhole faith. It's sort of modeled on that old saying that there are no atheists in foxholes which is not technically true, but there's kind of a proverbial truth to that, right? If you're a soldier in World War I and you're sitting in a foxhole and you're being bombed and there's, there's chemical gas all over the place and you think you're about to die, there's nothing you can do about it, you're praying out to, crying out to God, save me! It's only in our moment of great need that we really pour our hearts out to God. But then as soon as the need and the crisis passes, sometimes our love for God cools. Crisis Christianity, or foxhole religion, is still alive and well today. It could be a problem like the ones we've been describing. I've hit some issue in my life that has just completely knocked the, the wind out of me. And, and I can't control it. I, I've lost my job, or somebody in my family's gotten horribly ill, or I've gotten horribly ill. It could be any one of a million crises, but major crisis, and I can't control it, and it leads us to God. God, please help me with this. Although it's not always a crisis. Sometimes it's a good thing. Sometimes it's just a need in our lives. I'll never forget the way that I felt the day my wife and I drove our firstborn child, our daughter, home from the hospital. You know, she was born and she was there for a day or two. And, you know, there's all these, like, really cool people, nurses around who, like, actually know what they're doing and what they're talking about. You know, and they're, like, taking care of you and, and giving you anything you need. And, and then all of a sudden, like, they discharge you. Like, like I'm going to take care of this little one, you know? Like, I'm competent for this. And so we had her all strapped up in her, you know, car seat and, you know, armor plated and, you know, in a like nuclear proof bubble and stuff like that because I'm hyper protective. And, and I just, I remember, you know, I'm just driving home and, and your head's full of so many things. I just remember the moment we pulled into the parking lot of our apartment at the time and it just hit me. I'm looking over at my wife in the passenger seat and there's this little one behind us. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's totally up to us. <laughs> and I felt, I don't know that I'm ready for this. Doesn't matter. You're in it now, Right. God, help me with this. Wow, I, things were fine when it was just me, but now there's a need I don't feel up to, and so it drives me to God. Or sometimes it's even a good thing. Sometimes it's a big opportunity. God, I really need this job. Please, 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 God, I'll do anything for you. But whether it's a crisis or a need or an opportunity, many things in life cause us to suddenly be interested in the things of God in a new and much deeper way. But as soon as the situation passes, our newfound interest in spiritual things can sometimes cool as quickly as molten lava spilling into the ocean. 
a hiss and a big cloud of steam. And then that heart that was suddenly warm and pliant toward God hardens up, and I'm back to my old ways. If you've become open to the things of God at some point in your life, either recently or in the distant past, as a result of a need or an opportunity or a crisis, we should know that that is a legitimate way that God gets our attention. Uh, That's not to say that the crises in our lives that bring us to an interest in God are somehow illegitimate. God does use pain and difficulty and overwhelming need to make us realize that we need Him. But I think that's the important thing to realize. In a moment where I feel my need for God more than I normally do because of the situation in my life, at that moment, I'm actually more realistic. That's the point. I'm actually more in touch with reality than normal. The truth of the matter is, I desperately need God 24-7, 365. Every breath I breathe, every beat of my heart depends on the grace and the mercy of God. And certainly my continued existence for all eternity in the uh, blessedness of God's presence is totally dependent on Him. I'm dependent on God in every way, shape, and form. Here's the problem. The problem is most of the time I don't feel that way especially living here in America, where we have opportunity and we have relative wealth and security and I can go get a job and work hard and take care of myself and and, and earn my money and take care of my own needs and I'm doing very well without God. Thank you very much. I seem to be fine. And at that moment, the Bible says you're totally blind. You're out of touch with reality. You think you don't need God, but you really do. It's these crisis moments that actually make us more aware of the need we have for God all the time. But if it's a sense of crisis that brought you to God, you should know that the feeling sooner or later will eventually fade. It will. Even though the reality won't fade, the feeling will fade when the crisis passes. You see, a real relationship with God has to be built on more than just the feeling of the moment. That can sometimes be the the opening of the window that helps me see things the way they really are, the the opening of the proverbial door, but I've got to walk through that door and recognize that crisis or not, I need my life built on God 24-7, 365. The ancient Israelites had experienced a a cultural uh, religion, a crisis Christianity, or a crisis uh, faith in God. They had also had a history of doing God's thing their way. So many examples of this. Here's just one for the sake of time. Think back to the time of Samuel when the Israelites asked for a king in the first place, just a couple of uh, years before David himself became their king. Yes, God wanted them, this was them doing God's thing, but doing it their way. God wanted them to be a nation, we've already seen that, but he didn't set them up with a human king. They asked for a human king because they looked back on their own history and they said, you know what, our history is far from perfect. Things haven't always worked out the way that God promised they would. And when they looked around at other nations who were larger than them and had been much more established, they saw the way that those other nations did things and the fact that those other nations had kings. And they said, you know what? That's what we need. We need to be like them. We need to have a king who will lead us and and who will fight our battles for us and, and, and organize us like all of these other nations. That's what will be the key to our success. They looked at their problematic past and they decided to roll up their sleeves and just troubleshoot it. Oh, and then, of course, pray that God would bless that. There's always a strong temptation to dictate to God how his plan is going to look, even among those of us who have ostensibly submitted to God's plan. 
I will do whatever you say, God. Well, you don't say that over there, right? God, I'll give everything in my life to you. You can take whatever you want for your purposes, as long as you don't take my family. Just not that one. As long as you don't take my money, my job, just not that one. You see, it's easy to start to subtly begin to reframe things so that I'm essentially dictating to God what his authority in my life looks like. That's what they had done. And lastly, certainly their history had been characterized throughout by idolatry, the worship of other false gods and idols. Despite pledges of absolute loyalty to God, these people were never, ever, ever at any point in their history, the Old Testament makes clear, were they ever completely free of the worship of other idols. They would go present their sacrifices at the temple just as God had instructed them to do. It it looked good on the outside. They were doing the right things. But then they would mix in a little sacrifice to the um, pagan gods on the high places, which God had told them to tear down a long ago, and they'd never really gotten around to completely doing that. So the temptation was always there, and they would hedge their bets and sacrifice to the other gods as well. The bottom line is they absorbed many of the values and beliefs of the cultures around them thus failing to be a completely distinctive people as God had called them to be. And it's hardly worth mentioning that, of course, the same thing is true today, although it's too important not to mention. But it's obvious, isn't it? There's always the battle for Christians in every society, at every time. It's no different for us to say, am I fully loyal to God, but I, 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 I love God and I want to serve him, but I also exist in this culture, in this community that has a different value system that's often in direct opposition with God. And I live in that culture and that environment all the time, and I feel the pressures of it when I go to school. I feel the pressures of it when I go to work. I feel the pressures of it with my friends and my extended family. And it's very hard not to absorb some of the values of my culture and kind of mix them with the values of Scripture. It's too easy to attend church sporadically or maybe even fairly consistently and yet ultimately go home and worship at the altar of career advancement, self-discovery, even family. Well, the point is the Israelites had said they were God's people. They looked good on the outside, but there was so much compromise, it was like dry rot. And by Isaiah's time, 400 years after the period of David, now we're up to our passage this morning, the whole thing had collapsed under its own dead weight. Just as things had looked almost perfect in David's day, the rot built into the structure caused it to collapse. And so here we are in Isaiah's time, 400 years later, and every part of the dream had been systematically dismantled. A nation, they were no longer a single nation. They were split in two, almost got into a civil war over it as a result of a succession crisis after King David had died. And what's more, both of those separate kingdoms had at different times been besieged, attacked, and conquered by foreign uh, armies. So they were now no longer an independent, self-governing nation by this time. Part of that was the destruction of the king's palace in Jerusalem uh, when that southern kingdom was conquered in 586 BC. What a vivid picture that your king no longer exists. We've knocked his throne down. We've destroyed his palace. Secondly, they were no longer in the land. 
It was pretty common back in the ancient Near East that when one nation conquered another, part of the way that they would undermine that nation is they would deport the remaining survivors. They would take them out of their own land, and then they would take some of their own foreigners and resettle them in the land of the people they conquered. That was a way of of making sure that that nation never rose again as a cohesive nation in its own land, and that had happened to the ancient Israelites. They had been conquered And the Israelites who weren't killed either in the fighting or in the sieges, many of the able-bodied ones had been deported. They had been hauled off against their will to foreign countries where they now lived as servants or slaves. So it was a total reversal of their picture of blessing. Now the Jews, again, are living outside the promised land, and there are other people who are living in it. Everything has fallen apart. And lastly, needless to say, the blessings they had enjoyed were largely evaporated. They had no more national security or wealth. Obviously, they had been conquered. They were slaves, and all their wealth was hauled off by the conquerors. And and maybe most importantly of all, the temple, that building we mentioned earlier that was so important because it was emblematic of their special connection with God, the connections that they alone had, the temple itself was destroyed when they were conquered. All of its articles and implements, the gold, the bowls, the candle stands, all the stuff that they used in the worship of God was hauled out as trophies for the conquering kings and displayed in their foreign palaces and treasuries. And the building itself, the temple, was burned and destroyed. What a picture of the fact that you are no longer God's people with a special connection to God. This was a thorough and systematic reversal of everything that had gone well from their point of view. But in our passage, God promises one day, one day, his people will experience life for real this time. Not a dry-rotted kind of caricature of real life, the real thing. What would be different? How is this going to happen? That brings us to the heart of this passage, a passage that is so often read at Christmas time, as it should be, because it is a prophecy of the birth of Jesus Christ, and that's what Christmas is all about. But having understood the context, hopefully we can now better understand the promise. How will God make life well? How will he make it good? A child will be born, and he will be king. He will be king. God sends a person, a child, who will grow up and he will take charge. That's the good news. That's the good news. When the government, verse 6 says, is on his shoulders, that's when things get better. Not just when we kind of come to God and say, I'm sorry, would you bless me a little bit? Not when we try harder to be a better people for God. Not when we try to sin less. But when the king comes and when he is reigning, when he's in charge. That's when things get good. Do you see how the scripture connects this? The hope of God's people is inseparably connected to the reign of God's Messiah. That's the hope God's people have been given. Of the four titles that are applied to this future king, this Messiah, at the end of verse 6, the final one, Prince of Peace, is what we're focusing on for these few weeks. Again, you see the direct connection. The prince, that's an authority word. That means he's a king. He's, he's going to grow up and take over the throne someday. The prince of peace, of shalom. His kingship means life is the way it was meant to be. The two are inseparably connected. 
Verse 7 elaborates on this even more. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. You see, the two always go together. The more in charge the Messiah is, the more blessing there will be for everybody. Eternal life comes when the king is on his throne. And the very last clause of verse 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Emphasizes that this will be 100% God's work. Not ours, not anybody else's. Verse 4 had said he will break the burden of his people as on the days of Midian. That's a reference back to Judges chapter 7 and the story of Gideon, which some of you may be familiar with. The Israelites were facing a large army. They were outnumbered. They had 32,000 soldiers themselves, but they were still heavily outnumbered. And God says, I'm going to deliver you, but you got too many guys. So he cuts their 32,000 down to 10,000, and then he cuts their 10,000 down to 300 puny little guys. And he says, all right, go out and fight tens of thousands because I want there to be no mistake when this fight wins, who did it? It had nothing to do with you. It was all me. And God brings that back to mind here when he promises the Messiah. He says, when this Messiah comes and he rules and reigns, it's going to be so clear that it's all him. I want there to be absolutely no mistake. You had nothing to do with it. I will bring you life because I will send the king to rule. There's at least a couple of important things to understand about this as we think about Advent and Christmas time. As we think about Christmas time biblically, scripturally, we let the scripture kind of shape our thoughts. First of all, one of the obvious and inescapable implications of what the Bible is teaching here is that the term Savior and the term Lord as applied to Jesus are really just two sides of the same coin. The coin is the gospel. Savior and Lord are the two sides of the same gospel coin. To come to Jesus as my Savior, the one who pays for my sin at his cost, not at my cost. It's a free gift for me. It's an incredibly costly gift for him. But it's a free gift for me. I come to him as my Savior. I must do that if I'm going to be saved. But the other side of that coin is when I'm approaching the Savior who sacrificed himself, I'm also approaching the King ensconced on the universe's throne. I can't separate the two because I will only find life, eternal life, the forgiveness of my sins when he is ruling and reigning over my life. It's pretty popular nowadays uh, in Western societies like ours to be very open to the idea of God as a benevolent savior. God being a God of love, um, somebody who wants to make things better for us, Great, no problem. Very few people have any issues at all in our modern society with that sort of picture of God. But the minute Jesus starts to assert his authority over our lives, we start to back away and say, whoa, 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 wait a second. E easy there, partner. What's, what's, what are you talking about here? We look at our body, our time, our identity, our whole life, and we say, hey, that's mine. Now, if you want to help out, we can talk. <laughs> but let's not get crazy here. You see, the gospel confronts, on the one hand, religious moralism, and on the other hand, individualistic relativism. 
Individualistic relativism is a fancy, lots of syllables. It basically just means this. It's kind of the dominant way people in our society live their lives today, whether we've thought about it or not. It's when I say, look, I am the ultimate authority for my own life. That, that's, it's individualistic. It's about me, and it's up to me to decide what's best for me. That's why it's relative. There's nothing that's absolutely right or wrong or nothing that's absolutely true. It's what's true for me, and I'm the sole one who gets to determine that. I get to set my rules. I get to set the purpose of my life, my own dreams, my own agenda. That's at the heart of what we now think of as the American dream. And a relationship with God in this view looks a lot like this. If God wants to offer me um, some kind of blessing, (laughs) some kind of eternal life, fabulous, sweet, I'll consider the deal, and if it makes sense to me, I'll take it. Who hates free stuff, right? I mean, come on. If God wants to help me be the kind of person I ultimately want to be, I'm all about that. Oh, there can be a very real spirituality in this individualistic, kind of relativistic way of looking at life, but it's one in which I'm still calling the shots. And the gospel contradicts this because it says there is no such thing as receiving salvation and blessing from God apart from submitting to his authority as your rightful king. The idol of autonomy must be put away. Every bit as much as the idols of the ancient Israelites had to be put away for them to stay in relationship with God. Because it's our insistence on autonomy that the Bible tells us is the very heart of sin from the very beginning. Now, on the other hand, the Bible also contradicts religious moralism. Religious moralism is essentially the view that I'm going to do what God wants me to do so that because I followed the rules, I will win the game. I'm going to look at all the things that God says in the Bible, and I'm going to follow every one of them. I'm going to take it seriously, and I mean it. I'm not just putting on a show. Like, I seriously mean that. I'm going to take it seriously, and I'm going to do the best I can to be the best kind of person God wants me to be as best I understand it. And I'm ticking off every box on that list because if I get enough of it right, then I get an A. I pass the class. I get eternal life. And so it looks like submission to God as opposed to this kind of autonomy view where I kind of call my own shots. Over here, it looks like somebody's really submitting to God. But a relationship with God in this view looks a lot like a business contract or transaction. We each get something we want, me and God. I do for God what God wants, and then God does for me what I want. God wants me to live a certain life, and so I live it to the best of my ability, and then I want certain blessings from God, and so hopefully he will answer my prayers and give me the blessings because I'm going to church. I'm being honest. I'm caring about people. I'm doing the things that I think God wants me to do. But the gospel also contradicts this way of living because it insists that we are not submitting to the lordship of Jesus if we reject the central teaching of Jesus, which is that there is nothing I can do to put God in my debt or earn my salvation. That's why he had to die on the cross. He's got to do it for me. He's got to do it all for me if it's going to be done. If I try to earn my own salvation, I'm not following Jesus. It doesn't matter how religious I am. It doesn't matter how sincere I am. 
I'm not following Jesus if I'm not following what Jesus said. And if I'm not following Jesus, I cannot be saved. You see, both the individualistic relativist and the religious moralist are really doing the same thing deep down inside, even though they're doing it very different ways. We're both, in both cases, we're trying to set the terms of our own salvation. But the fact that salvation is promised only in connection with the reign of Jesus as king means that there is no salvation apart from submitting to the lordship of Christ. And we're not submitting to the lordship of Christ if we're not receiving his salvation. You can't separate the two. They go hand in hand. They're two sides of the same coin. This also means that Jesus cannot ever simply be a means to an end. He can't be a means to an end. I can't come to Jesus in order to to get something from Jesus in my current life circumstance. Now again, as we said earlier, sometimes it's my current need that drives me to God in the first place. And there is a legitimacy to that. God often uses the felt needs that I have in this life to help me realize I have a real need all the time. And so there is a legitimacy to saying, God, I need you in this situation, and that breaks down my heart, and it helps me open up to who God is. But ultimately, God is not here to make deals and negotiate arrangements with an autonomous public. He's not marketing a product. He is announcing his rightful reign. Christmas is the message that the king has come. And that's good news. He's here to bring ultimate peace and prosperity by reestablishing his rightful place as ruler over the world and over everyone in it. See, once our need drives us to Jesus, Jesus is grateful to point out what our, he's gracious, rather, to point out what our real need actually is. He says your real problem is your self-will. That's the root of the problem. The human heart's default and ever-present passion to save itself on its own terms. God says, that's your ultimate problem. And you can't work your way out of that. You can't make yourself get over that. You have no more ability to make your heart not self-willed as an act of self-will than I have the ability to grab myself by my own hair and pull up and yank myself up off the stage. It's just impossible. No matter how strong I am, I can't do it. Now, somebody else who's strong enough could come behind me and yank me up, hopefully by my arms, not by my hair, because that would hurt. I can be lifted off the stage, but I can't lift myself off the stage. In the same way, I can't make my self-willed heart become not self-willed. He says, that's your real problem. And so I'm glad you've come to me for life. I'm happy to give it to you. I paid a tremendous cost in order for this opportunity to give it to you. Now, here's how it's going to work. You need radical surgery. You need radical surgery. If you lose your life for my sake, to paraphrase Jesus, then you will find real life. So get under the knife and let me cut your self-will out of you so that I might put myself as your king in the place of yourself as your king, and you will begin to experience true life. One more implication of this. Not only is Savior and Lord two sides of the same coin in Scripture, 
Uh, Not only does this mean that Jesus can never just be a means to an end, even if that's how my relationship with God starts, it has to move beyond that fairly quickly if it's going to last. But lastly, it means that Jesus is only available on his terms, not mine. And his terms are total surrender. It's interesting in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the very first words that Jesus spoke in the gospel of Mark when he began his ministry as a young adult. He said, very simply, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's how he began his public ministry. That's how he began presenting himself to the world. The kingdom of God is here. Why? Because I'm here. And I'm the king. Therefore, repent. Change your whole way of living and thinking. Stop living for yourself and start submitting to me. And believe that is bank everything on the good news of the gospel. When you do submit to me as Lord, you will find eternal life. He says his announcement that he's the king showing up to take over is good news. Not bad news. That's good news. Because it's there that we will find life. I can't just let Jesus into part of my life while cordoning off other areas of my life and expect that to work. Now, it's true that repentance is something we continually grow in as Christians. I'm constantly learning how much I have not repented, despite how much I think I have, how how deeply I still cling to some of my own desires and my own choices and my own security and, and my own sense of how I want my life to go. And God is gracious to constantly point that out and say, you're not fully surrendered. And if I'm willing to, to allow me to let go even more. Because I'm like, yes, God, you can have everything in my life, but there's this thing over here. I'm okay. And it just naturally kind of, but not, okay. That's a process we go through as Christians over and over again. But don't let the fact that it's a process make us confused or kind of obscured about what the call to repentance means. The call to repentance is a call to surrender to the universe's rightful king. C.S. Lewis put this so brilliantly in his book, The Mere Christianity. He says, what, regarding mankind's sin, he says, what sort of hole had a mankind dug him for himself? Had mankind dug for himself? Here's what he did. He tried to set up on his own to behave as if he belonged to himself. That's the problem. And I love this sentence from Lewis. He says, in other words, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. That's the call of the gospel. Laying down your arms, Lewis goes on, surrendering, saying you're sorry, realizing that you have been on the wrong track and getting ready to start life over again from the ground floor. That's the only way out of a hole. And this process of surrender, Lewis finishes, this movement full speed astern is what Christians call repentance. Friends, the birth of Jesus is the best news in the universe because it is the announcement of peace. It's the announcement of wholeness. It's the promise that you and I can find life as we have never yet fully experienced it in this life. And we will find peace when the universe's king is on his throne, which he one day will be over the entire world and every aspect of life in this world. 
And for now, he calls us to set him up as the king over our lives. As we come into this Christmas season, how can we as a church submit and surrender more of our lives to our rightful ruler and king? Confident that no matter how hard that may be to do in the short term, letting it go will result in life because we only find life when he's on the throne. Jesus, we come to you now as a people, a church, um, made up of members, every one of whom proclaims that you are our king. That's the desire of our hearts. And we do mean it. It's not that we don't mean it, although we recognize that in this life, we still battle our own desires to hang on to our own autonomy in dozens of ways, both large and small. And so as we come this morning, Father, as a people, we want to offer up to you, our King, our true lives, to celebrate your entrance into the world. Yes, to bring us life, but also to reestablish your rule because the two go hand in hand. God, may you find in us a people who are thrilled that we're not in charge of ourselves, but that we are exultant over the reign of Jesus in our lives and receive the worship of his people now. We pray in Christ's name, amen.